Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to share this conversation with my friend, actor, and advocate, Jon Snow. Just two quick notes before we get into today's topic. First, this episode was recorded a while back prior to the actor's strike. And second, this episode goes in-depth into the topic of sexual abuse involving minors from the perspective of a male survivor. So I wanted to give you just a quick content warning before we dive into the episode. It is an extremely heavy conversation, but there's a lot of valuable insights throughout that I think are going to be ultimately really helpful. I just want to help you get the right frame of mind before diving in. John is an actor and a writer, but he is first and foremost the survivor of both a cult and of sexual abuse. He was raised in St. Louis, Missouri, and ran away from home and the cult at around 17 years old between his junior and senior year. The cult, the sexual abuse, and physical abuse endured from his mother left John feeling powerless, a young man without a voice. Not long after running away, acting came calling in the form of a mostly paid-for tuition at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, but even that was no walk in the park. He promptly failed out of college during his freshman year, after which he returned to St. Louis. Four years later, John returned to Dallas and SMU, determined to pursue acting. He was rejected on the grounds that the theater department did not see enough evidence of growth. Not to be deterred, John fought for his spot and was readmitted into the acting program, graduating in 2002 with a BFA in acting. Next came the move to Los Angeles and the pursuit of the Hollywood dream. Fifteen years later, without much to show for an acting career, John realized he'd only been running from his past and that if he ever wanted the future he dreamed of, something had to change. Through hustle and hard work, John was able to find a coveted position as a reader for multiple casting offices around Los Angeles, and now having been a participant in over 10,000 auditions to date, he started teaching other actors the insights he has gleaned during his time as a reader. Today, John's larger mission is to continue to find ways to deepen the connection to his voice and to reach back out to those who feel powerless, voiceless, alone, and afraid. Having walked that path himself, John can think of no better way than to shine a light in the darkness for others to follow. Even if it's just a single person, he knows it's all well worth the effort. All right, let's go ahead and get into today's episode with John Snow. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. John, thanks so much for joining me on today's show. My pleasure. Glad to be here, man. Yeah, glad to have you on. And I was just saying before I hit record, I feel like I already know you because <laughs> we frequent the same spots uh, digitally and we, yes. uh, we talk about the same causes. And um, I had uh, Shelly on the show. Um, I say not long ago. It's probably a year and a half ago or so now. I was going to say, I think it's um, almost two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's been been pretty wild. So uh, just just right off the bat, like, tell us a little bit about how you kind of got introduced to this uh, this wild world of the IFB and uh, kind of what your experience and background is. Yeah. I mean, introduced is uh, an interesting word. I would say uh, um, I didn't know anything else. Um, that was just life. Um and so I didn't know what it was other than being in the IFB. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that my I know that my parents, and I only know this because they've told me, but I know that my parents were part of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, before they got involved with the IFB. And it was, you know, it wasn't so much about conservative values or anything like that as much as I think, it, if I remember correctly, something about my dad wanted their money that they were giving to the church go to missions and they said that they wouldn't designate into a certain area or something like that um that it was just sort of goes into a general fund and my dad didn't like that for whatever reason and they decided to leave and then i don't know how he uh got involved or introduced to jack hiles but um when i was five or six years old he made the decision to go to hiles anderson and uh, took all of us with him from St. Louis at the time. Um, and we lived in Hammond. Uh, when we first moved there, we lived in an apartment complex. It's still there. It's not called this anymore. But when I was a kid, it was called the Meadows. And it was literally across the street or across the train tracks. Um, and then the church was just a block or so on the other side of those train tracks. Um, and so that's where we landed. And dad worked as a janitor there. And uh, in the in the apartment complex and worked his way through Hiles Anderson and had a bunch of different jobs and um, you know uh, it, but it took him I think six years to get through Hiles Anderson because he had to stop and start because we were poor and you know jobs would come and go and that kind of thing and so um, but man that's 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 what I grew up in that's all I really knew I mean the first time I went to school um, was at Hammond Baptist Grade School so. Um, from the age of five to the age of 12 before we moved back to St. Louis, um, man, that was, that was it. That was life. Yeah. I mean, we relate to the fact that it wasn't a choice. It was kind of just here we yeah. are, <laughs> we're, we're in this. Um, I mean, tell me a little bit just about that because, you know, my experience was very similar in the sense of there's nothing to compare it to. So this is all, all at the same time, the best and the worst thing that I've ever done. Um, yeah. but my upbringing was pretty positive. Like I, I looked at my life and, you know, didn't identify anything as being off or weird or strange because there is no comparison. Mm -hmm. um, did you look when you were going through those years, like, were you positive about where you were? Did you question like what else is out there? Like what was kind of your outlook on life at that time? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a caveat for this entire conversation because there were a lot of bad things that happened to me as a young boy that, uh, cloud my cloud my memories even today. Um, there's a lot that I've blocked, and I've had to piece certain parts of my life together with Shelly, actually, and um, sometimes with my mom, who's still very much involved um, in in the IFB movement um, or cult, if you want to call it that, because I like to call it that. Um, and 
you know, but so, I, you know, uh, pretty early on, I mean, six years old or so, um, I was raped by a male babysitter and that changes your whole out, out, outlook on life. And in fact, my mom has told me, cause my mom and dad didn't know for years, um, because, you know, everything was shameful and everything was a sin. And even though I was just a kid, I knew what had been done to me was wrong, but I felt like I was a participant in it. And so I had therefore done wrong as well. And so I wasn't going to tell anybody. And I convinced Shelly not to tell anybody for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, but that it does change your outlook on life. You, My mom told me uh, years later that she never understood why, but around that time, Shelly and I sort of flip-flop personalities where I was once very sort of reticent and shy, uh, and Shelly was very outspoken and boisterous, uh, we flipped roles and I became the outspoken boisterous one and she became more reticent and shy. Um, and so I only know that from my mom telling me that, but uh, that obviously changed things for me. But, you know, when something like that, that traumatic happens, you kind of start wondering about a lot of things, I think. And, but I will tell you, uh, the day that I do, I do know the day that I questioned my faith. Um, because, you know, as a boy, I was, I was in hook, line and sinker, man. I was, I was in it. Um, I had committed to reading my Bible every day and praying every day. I did all the things I remember, even in those apartments, um, there was this guy, Ruben, I don't know why I remember this, but <laughs> there was this kid, Ruben, who was a little bit older than me that lived upstairs. And I really liked Ruben a lot. And Ruben used to sit in the hallways of the apartment uh, building and he would make these these beats uh, with his hands on the doors. And I just thought that was so cool. And I just loved Ruben. And I remember trying to save him and, and lead him to the Lord and, and all of that stuff. Like I was doing all the things. And you know, I mean, you know, and, and I'm sure most of your audience knows too, that you go to Hiles Anderson or your, your parent goes to Hiles Anderson, you go to Hammond Baptist grade school. Like, it's just, that's life. You're just doing it every day. You're in all of the, all the time. So you're constantly in Bible school and reading Bible verses and memorizing Bible verses, reciting them and, you know, doing all those things. And it was really easy to do all of that because again, when that's the only thing, you know, we all inherently as humans have this this need and this this desire for community, and that's the only community that's presented. Well, you you go all in, and that was that was where I was. And um, but I was a very curious kid. I was a very bright kid, and like my dad, like this is this is the stuff that doesn't make sense to me that I really <laughs> I really wonder about. Um, and he's gone now, so I can't ask my dad why. But um, you know growing up, my dad had us read things like Shakespeare and Chaucer and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, as I look back with my adult brain now, I'm like, do you realize what you were giving me to read as a kid? Um, and so there were a lot of things that I was, I was just a voracious reader as a kid. I was curious about everything. Um, but I remember, I don't remember who the preacher was. I, I would imagine it was Jack Hiles. Although it could have been in any, you know, chapel service or anything else, I don't really remember. Um, and but the the preacher preached about the uh, having the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, and I remember him saying, 
and like holding up his hands and showing you how tiny a grain of a mustard seed was um, or a mustard seed was. And just imagine the grain of that mustard seed and you can move mountains. And so I'm an eight year old boy and it, I, I assume it was the summertime because uh, it feels to me, at least anyway, the very next day. I went outside and I sat in the yard and this by this time we had we had moved into a duplex. Uh, we lived on the bottom and there was neighbors up, upstairs and, and I went into the yard and I, again, details that I don't know why I remember. I, I got a five gallon bucket from the shed and I turned it upside down and I sat in the yard and across from us was another house and there was it was all brick houses and the chimney uh, on this house next door was bulging. And I thought, I'm going to make that chimney fall. I'm going to get that chimney. And so I sat there all day long and I'm just like, okay, here we go. I've got the faith, the size of a grain of a mustard seed. I'm going to knock this chimney down. Cause you know, I got to start small. I didn't want to knock down a mountain. I just want well, to start with a chimney and see how it goes. Um, and all day long I sat there and not a brick budged. And I remember thinking, huh? <laughs> you know, just, and, and that was the first time that I was like, well, wait a minute, that didn't work. Why didn't that work? And, you know, I mean, and then again, I, I look back at this with my adult brain and I go, man, if, if a child of that age doesn't have enough faith, mm -hmm. like then who does, you know, yeah. like you're, you're a kid with a wild imagination, like kids can believe almost anything they want. Right. And, you know, that brick yeah. didn't fall. And I was kind of set on that path from then on. Uh, how, how old are you around this time? Probably about eight, nine years no. old. Maybe. I don't know why it was. And I relate to so much of your story. Um, I mean, so much of it. Like my my mom was super into literature. So we were reading things that like most kids couldn't read in the same movement. So I felt like that's kind of other layer. And it was good. I mean, I mean, I look back now and I'm like, I got the best version of a bad situation. It was like kind of what I always tell people. It's like I had supportive parents that always prioritized a relationship and, you know, allowed me to read things and watch things that other kids couldn't and, you know, kind of, kind of gain knowledge from other sources here and there. Um, and we had all the quirkiness too. I mean, there was some of that, that too. Um, but one of the things I don't relate to is like, I just never questioned at that age. Like I, I talked to a lot of people and it's usually like, oh, I was eight or nine and this didn't make sense. And like, I, I see into like, it all made sense to me. Like everything made sense to me. I was, I was like, I internalized it. I think like you, you talk about sitting there and going like, I have the faith for it. Why isn't it working? Like for me, I always went, I don't have enough faith. I need to have more. I need to become better. I need to improve myself. It's my fault that it's not working this way. Now, it wasn't until I was like 17 or 18 that like, it was like, oh, there's clearly something wrong here. Um, so what was it like starting, since I don't have any frame of reference for this, like, what was it like starting that young to question just, I mean, little things about faith, but then in conjunction with that, like, as you're getting older, growing up in a place like Hiles, you're seeing scandals happen, you know, getting covered in the ways that they do there. But like, how did you grapple with that stuff? And like, did you talk to anybody about that? Did you, were you able to ask questions about any of that? Like, that feels like it'd be a lonely situation. It, it was a very lonely situation, actually, um, because I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. And I didn't feel comfortable asking because I saw people ask questions and I saw people get ridiculed and shot down for asking yeah. questions and not just blindly accepting what was being given to them. Um, man, listen, I, I can't tell you 
from the age of about eight to, I mean, and this is the thing, I, I, it made me question things, but it, that desire to fit into the community never didn't go away for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times lying in my bed as a child at night, I asked God to come and save me just in case the last time didn't work, mm-hmm. just in case I didn't say it right or didn't do it well Relate to that yeah. the last time. And yeah. I mean, literally hundreds of times I must have said that those, you know, those magic words for that prayer so that I wouldn't, and you know, and this, I, I, I got saved when I was five because, you know, all I, again, I remember very clearly the preacher preaching about hell and I was going to burn forever in a lake of fire and thinking as a five-year-old, well, screw that. I don't yeah. want to do that. That sucks. So let's go good. Let's go do this thing. Also, I was very excited to get baptized because I really didn't, I didn't have a pool, but I really wanted one as a child still do. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I get to go in the Baptist. Oh, that's, that's, let's go to the Baptist yeah. and go jump in, you know, but, um, so it was, you know, it was a very lonely experience for me, but I still, I mean, I still, Eric, I, I would renew my, my vows or whatever, uh, to, you know, read four chapters of the Bible a day. So I get through the Bible in a year and, you know, all the things that they told you to do. And, um, you know, I still continued, I mean, listen, even into my twenties, I still went back and forth from time to time, mm-hmm. um, and ended up in church in my early twenties. And I remember praying with a girlfriend at the time to have God make sure that we were in the right relationship and all. And, you know, I mean, and even even as I say that, I feel this pit in my stomach because I even knew then, like it was very performative. I I, I was trying really hard, but I didn't. There was no heart in it. I had no faith or belief in it. Um, you know, so that that lasted for, you know, decades. So so what drove it then? Was it the social aspect that you felt like you're missing on, or was it just like the what if was getting you where it's I like? Think, I think both. Because yeah. I you know it, again, this was the only community I knew. So. And, and the, you know, and, and as you know, outside communities are, are, are demonized and you're told how wrong everyone else is. And now everybody's going to hell except for you, except for the people who think and believe the way the, these people do. Yeah. Um, and so I, I desperately wanted to still fit in. Yeah. So you have the social aspect of obviously it's all you know, yeah. which, which to me oh, was yeah. a, a really scary piece. But, but I was scared also, too. Yeah. I was super scared. I mean, listen, I remember... I must have been 16, I think. Um, my uncle took me to a movie and, you know, we were talking about something and he grew up in the same way that I did. Um, and he, you know, he's only, he's my uncle, but he's only two years older than me. He was the youngest. My dad was the oldest, it, you know, yeah. wild situation. But anyway, um, we were at the theater, we were walking into this, the dollar movie theater and we were talking about something and he just went, he said, F God. And I was like, oh. And I literally stepped off of the sidewalk and walked the rest of the way by, you know, with about four or five feet between us. And I was like, no, dude, I'm not like, no, not I mean, risky. Stay yeah. over there. Cause if that comes down, like you're going to be getting it, not me. And, you know, so I was still terrified, you know, and it's, I, it's still stuff I work through today, yeah. man. Um, you know, there's a, I, I do a lot of journaling and almost every time I do an entry at the end of my entries, I always write surrender further. And for me, that's just letting go and this, you know, like mm. letting life flow through me. And 
Um, but I, I was working, I have a mentor that I was working with yesterday and we were talking about surrender and, you know, as an actor, um, in particular, I was telling him how I've been struggling lately with, um, heavier emotional scenes and not allowing myself to just sort of crack open and be vulnerable and open to that. And I keep talking, and I was, as I was working through something for my mentor the, uh, this last week, um, I was recording a monologue and I purposely picked something that was heavy for me. Um, cause I knew it would be difficult and talking through it, you know, I, I was like, man, I just, I need to surrender. I need to surrender to this. And even as I was just saying it, I was like, oh, like even surrender for me has a still to this day, I am 49 years old. And to this day, surrender has this connotation. And I was like, oh, I'm still like equating surrendering to Jesus. And it's still yeah. tripping me up. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, I've done a lot of work. <laughs> I've done a lot of therapy, you know? It's so it, funny because when you said surrender further, I was like, man, that's a youth conference theme right there. Like, 100%. <laughs> surrender right? further. 100%. It's, yeah, it, it's wild. And I had no idea you were 49. Um, yeah. So I need your skincare routine. We'll drop some affiliate <laughs> links in the... That's, uh, that's Papa Billy, man. That's that's jeans. I can't do anything about that. God, man, I'm I'm like 28, and my I, I look at my pores, and I'm like, on this rate, I'm just gonna be like a giant hole in like the next 20 years. Um, so, but no, I mean, it, there's so much to work through. That the the fear for me is like deep rooted, and I was I was telling my wife that, um, and. Uh, I'm scared. I'm scared I'm going to take over this episode, but like everything you're saying, I relate to so much. So I'll try not to talk too much, but it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where like fear is like such an anchor for me. And like, it was for so long because it was the salvation decisions were rooted in fear. Youth conference decisions were rooted in fear. Like picking how many ministries to serve in was rooted in fear. Like the, the relationships were all rooted in fear. Like if I do this, while well, I lose these relationships and one of the scariest things for me, and I don't know if you relate to this, but like one of the things for me that scared me um, really early on when I started Preacher Boys, like three years ago, even like there were a lot of times I would sit and go, I'm doing all the things they warned would happen <laughs> when I was younger. And so, you know, uh, I, I'm talking to people I would never have talked to before. Um, the church doesn't talk to me now people who I once respected as great spiritual leaders now hate me, you know, um, family relationships have been strained. Like I started going like, Oh, they said this would happen if I turned my back on the Lord, you know, which, right. which is funny because in the beginning of the show, like I still consider myself a Christian, you know? And then, and then even that the deconstruction process there, like when I walked away from that, it was like, Oh, I'm walking away from my faith now. Like I, it was like these self-fulfilling prophecies all coming true. And, uh, you know, and one of the one of the last things was like, man, if there's like a one percent chance I'm wrong and hell is my final destination, like that's a scary, scary thought, you know. And it's just, yeah, all all that stuff is so hard to undo. And I feel like I'm finally now at a point where like that's not a daily. Like at some point, I'm going like, oh, I'm scared of going to hell, you know. But like that's hammered in from the time like you learn the sky is blue, you learn the alphabet, you learn Jesus died on the cross, and if you don't accept it, you're going to hell. Like. That's a lot to unpack, you know, and, and it's comforting and it's really scary to know that, you know, you're 49 years old and you're still working through those things. So it means there's a long road ahead. Um, what's been the most helpful thing in that process of like, you mentioned like kind of working through it, you know, like going through that process, but like, has it been therapy? Has it been 
reading other has it just been length of time out you know like what's been the most and the answer is probably yes to all of those things yeah it really it kind of is i mean it no. kind of is i mean look you know but i had other circumstances too eric i mean from the time i turned i don't know 14 15 years old i think 14 my mom started mm-hmm. beating me physically mm-hmm. um and so you know that was also that that filled me with a lot of hate a lot of anger um and you know and but again it was also incongruent with what i was being told yeah. and i didn't understand how i could be getting hit on a regular basis by my mom and yet we were these good christians yeah. um and there were so many things that i started noticing and you know i i think especially as a kid and as a young person in your teens, your early teens, it's really easy to see through people's bullshit. And Mm -hmm. I saw so many Christians that said one thing, but did another. And the hypocrisy in the church that I saw every single time I was there, it was just kind of like, okay, you guys are all full of it. Like, I don't understand this. Do you think it's because you're younger or do you think it's because you were taught to see everything as black and white? And I don't mean, I don't mean to catch I'm just curious what your perspective is, because to me, I think that's what it, like you're taught there's good and evil. Yeah. So like there is no grace. So when you see someone do something wrong, it's like, I don't know. Like, I, do you think that is the church in a way assisted you in seeing the hypocrisy? I think, I, I think so, because I find that there's very little nuance in that specific denomination. Yeah. Right. It is black and white. And so it's either or there's no gray. There's no middle. This just you're either this or you're that. And you're either with us or you're against us. Mm-hmm. And they have no problem pitting you against whomever. Yeah. And so, you know, when you say you must do this and then I watch so and so do something else, then I go, oh, well, that's not right. How? How are they still a deacon? How are they a preacher? How are they a soul or you know song leader? How are they whatever they are? How are they the piano player still? You know yeah. that kind of stuff. And so, um, I think that it it probably did unintentionally give me that outlook of well, if it's all black and white, then you're either wrong or you're right. So right. you're clearly wrong. How'd you go about untangling like? The abuses, I mean, you mentioned like as young as six. Was that someone connected to the church or was that a totally? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I went back and listened to the episode that you did with my sister um, mm-hmm. just to kind of refresh myself because it had been a while. Um, and uh, I had forgotten, actually, that you had said this, which gave me chills. Um, but she had mentioned to you that she found out when she went back to Hiles Anderson as a student uh, that one of the girls told her that uh, – she thought her brother and the guy who had molested us was part of a group of young men who had had a competition to see how many kids they could get. Yeah. And and you said you had heard that. And I thought, Oh my God. Um, so, um, that's, that's where that was, uh, for us, for me. Um, and so this was a young man who was involved in the church and he was part of the youth ministry at that time and, you know, um, all of that. And he was left unsupervised with my sister and I at one point, and, um, that was all he needed. And, you know, and the thing for that too, you know, I mean, look, man, this is, that's something that I have struggled with for so long. Um, and I, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place with it now, but it was very difficult because again, it's one of those things 
sexual abuse is hard because sexual abuse is difficult to it's as an adult it's hard to extricate your adult brain from that child experience mm -hmm. and so for years and years and years as i got older I would look back at that experience and feel like the worst person in the world, not giving myself the credit of being a six-year-old boy who didn't understand everything and didn't know everything. And I beat myself up for years. I should have protected my sister. I shouldn't have, I should have said no. I should have done something to stop it. And also feeling the guilt and the shame because this young man made it a game. He kept saying to us, do you want to play a game that adults play? And we would say, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, we do. And so him making it a game for us, I remember, I mean, I do remember, and this, this still is so heavy on my heart and I don't hold any, you know, shame or guilt about it anymore, but I did for so long, but I remember laughing. I remember giggling and I remember you know, as my sister said to you, he would send one of us around the corner and tell us not to peek while he would have his way with the other one on the couch. And, um, you know, and I remember peeking around the corner and laughing and giggling because this was the game that we had played. And so that that took a long, long time, took a lot of work, um, you know, and and also, you know, some forgiveness uh, or, or at least some, you know, forgiveness isn't, it wasn't really necessary, but um, just some clarity and some understanding from Shelly too, to say, hey, you always took care of me. You always protected mm -hmm. me to the best of your ability and you can't hold on to this moment. And um, getting through that with her was, was a big first step. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I've since told this story on stage. I've written uh, two different iterations of a one-man show about you know, being abused both by my mother physically and sexually by this man and growing up in the IFB cult, the way that we did and all of that. And so that's been helpful. And, you know, um, but, you know, I'm sure you're very well aware, uh, uh an old friend, um, I got, I got teamed up. I, I, when I first started writing my show, the first time I wrote my show, um, there's a, there's a woman that I'm sure you would know, but I'm, I'm going to keep her name anonymous for this. Uh, she directed me to a woman named Cynthia McCloskey, who I'm sure you know. And Cynthia asked me if she could put my story on her website. And I said, yeah, absolutely. She put my story on her website. Um, and I started working, you know, working through that show and, you know, that, that helped clear up a whole lot. But then um, this same woman, the anonymous one, she contacted me in 2000, I think it was 2018 and said, do you know about this expose that's coming out in the Fort Worth Star Telegram. And I mm. said, no. And she, she, so she alerted me to it. And then when it came out, she sent it to me. And I sat out here at our kitchen table um, on that Sunday morning that it dropped and bawled my eyes out. I mean, just bawled my eyes out. And I looked at Arielle, my wife, and, um, and I just said, um, I think I need to go to therapy. I, 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 you know, I thought I had done a lot of work and I know I had done a lot of work, but I thought I had, you know, really come to terms with a lot of this stuff and uh, reading through that and then watching people's testimonial videos that they put up and all of that. Um, yeah. Clearly there was still so much more in me. Um, so I did, I went to therapy and um, that was just so expanding um, and, and life-changing truly. Um, and so, you know, 
but it's, it's been a lot of work. It's yeah. been a lot of work and a long, long time. And, you know, going back and forth too, man, with being willing to jump into it. And then at other times, even after having jumped into it, even after, after having done a one man show about it and telling the freaking world about it, um, yeah. You know, and then like clamming up again and saying, oh, I can't do that again. I got it, you know, and then finding the strength and the courage to do it one more time and do a different iteration. And the second iteration was as close to stand stand up as I've ever come. Um, But that was important to me because, you know, there's a lot of these stories out there. And, uh, you know, I I, I loved stand up comedy, uh, always have. And uh I, I'll never forget when I was right before I ran away, my it was age 16 or so to 17, um, every Saturday night in St. Louis, I think it was around midnight. I forget what channel, but I had this old 13 inch color television that was so worn down that the knobs had fallen off and I would turn the channels with a pair of vice grips that I had turned, <laughs> that I had clicked onto the thing. And um, every night at midnight, my parents' room was downstairs and I was upstairs and I would just get real close to the TV and I'd watch these stand up comics for like an hour and I just loved it. Um, and so uh, I thought, you know, if I'm going to tell this story again, I want to try to have some fun with it. Yeah. And it's not often that people try to have fun with sexual molestation and, and physical right. abuse, but uh, you know, it's my story and I, it's my, it's my sexual molestation and my physical abuse. So I, I, I like to have fun with it when I can. And yeah. so, you know, yeah, it's 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 interesting hearing you talk about it because there is like there's untangling all these different threads of like there's just baseline belief which is enough to put somebody in therapy like what do i believe about things <laughs> yeah there's abuse there's sexual abuse on top of that like the and then you're attending a place that has so many skin like who do you trust who do you talk to what do you believe about this and then additionally on top of that like you're not just work, working at like each and our block, like, you know, going, oh, this is in the back of my mind. It's like, you're a creative, like myself, like Shelly, when I talk with her, where it's like, I'm going to talk about things like that's going to be my way of dealing with it. Um, but you mentioned like, that's a journey too, because on Tuesday, it sounds like a really good idea to share my story. And it feels like that'd be a great conversation piece. And then on Thursday, someone's going to ask me and I'm going to, like you said, clam up and I don't want to talk about it. And honestly, I want to fall into a hole right now because this is terrible. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Like, talk to me a little bit about, like, that creative expression of that. And, like, I, I guess, like, my, my question would be for somebody who's listening, I've already, I've already done it. You've already done it. Like, shared, shared or expressed your experience, like, how does someone know when they're ready to start talking about it? Like truly ready and not just, I had a margarita and I feel really loose right now. Let me share about my cult upbringing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now what's that, that process look like? Now that I'm lubed up a little. Let right, me, right. Spill everything. Um, well, I'll tell you, uh, I remember I was working at a bar in Pasadena um, and 
So I don't remember why, but things had really hit me hard. And Shelly was still a missionary in Romania. Wow. And I talked to her on the phone outside of that bar that I worked at. I had to take a break. Like I don't remember. Something, something triggered me somehow. Um, and I was very animated. I remember that. Not upset, but animated. And um, I remember being on the phone with Shelly and we were talking. And I just said to her, I have to start talking about what happened to us. And I don't know why. And I said, but I also know, I also feel like I need your permission because this story involves you. And she hadn't at that point. No, not, yeah. not at all. And in fact, that was sort of odd because she and I hadn't really spoken much hmm. since I left home. And, you know, that was a whole other thing. That was very difficult for me because when I left home, she went to Hiles Anderson not too long after that. And like for me, from my perspective, it was just like, well, shit, there goes my sister. She's lost now to this. And so that put a big wedge between us. And so it was a little odd that I was even talking to her about this. But she did. She gave me her blessing. And she asked me not to tell the whole story at that time because her kids were still pretty young. And she was worried. And, I, I you know, <laughs> for, me, for me, I was like, well, nobody listening to me anyway. I don't know, <laughs> you know who, who the right. hell am I. Um, but okay, I, I won't tell certain parts because of your kids. And now they're all, you know, grown and in their twenties and everything. So, um, I, I think she probably would give me a little more leniency with that, but it just sort of started like that. It just became a thing of, I just, I don't know, man. I just felt it in my bones. Like I had, to, I, I didn't have a choice. I had yeah. to tell the story, but I didn't know how it would look. And I didn't know what that meant. And it took a number of years until I finally did. But that was sort of the start of it. And it just kept knocking on my brain year after year after year. Um, and then when our dad died in 2011, I imagine this must have been around 2007 or eight when I spoke to her about this um, or maybe a little earlier. And uh, when our dad died in 2011, um, I was here in California. I wasn't doing anything. Um, I wasn't pursuing acting the way that I knew I wanted to and all of that. And I was really just kind of a bum and I was hiding out and um my dad had a small church in Arkansas and um, they didn't pay him for like the last two years, I think, of his life. He had to go get a job teaching at a Christian school in Arkansas somewhere just to make some money. Um, and when he died, um, you know, that was it. My mom was in the parsonage, but the parsonage belonged to the church and they were going to have to find a new preacher. So it's meant she had to get out. So Shelly was in Romania. Our other sister, Susanna, was married to her husband, Sean, and he's in, he was in the army, now retired. Um, so they were stationed in Germany. And then my brother was in Illinois. And I was like, oh, all right, you know what? And even as much as I didn't like my mom, um, even then, um, I was like, well, nobody else can do anything. So I went back to St. Louis. I found a place for her to live. I went down to Arkansas, got a truck, threw all her crap in the truck, moved her to St. Louis. And then I went to Canada for six months. And um, it was while I was in Canada, um, I, you know, I had a friend who is a very dear friend to me. She's actually my manager now, um, but still a very dear friend. And she's been doing a one woman show about her own sexual assault for mm. you know, 15 years or so. She's traveled all over the world. She's a dynamo. I mean, she's just a powerhouse of a woman. And she had disappeared off of social media and especially like I was on an Island in, in Canada. I was on salt spring Island off the coast of Vancouver. Like I was as isolated as I could possibly be. 
And she had sort of disappeared off of social media for a while. And she suddenly came back on and she said, oh, I'm starting this foundation. And, you know, it's going to be to help victims of sexual abuse and blah, blah, blah. I sent her a text or an email or something right away. And I said, hey, you don't know this about me, but this was what I experienced as a child. Can I help you? I will do anything for you. If I come back to L.A., I'll help you file papers. I'll sweep your floors. Like, I don't care. I just want to be of service to a cause like this. And she wrote me back. She said, can we get on the phone? I said, yeah. She called me the next day. She's like, you don't know this, but I've been searching for the last several years for a man to be my partner in this because there's not enough about the male side of this sexual abuse story. Would you be interested in creating your own one person show? And I said, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and so, and so that, that became the thing that finally triggered me you know my and my dad dying too my dad my dad's death was accidental he drowned he had epilepsy he drowned in the pool uh in the backyard he had bought this you know little i mean literally eric you could put your hands like this and touch both sides of the pool it was that small um and uh but he just bought it because it got hot in arkansas in the summer he just needed a place to cool off but he had epilepsy and he went out there one night to cool off and clean the pool and had a seizure and drowned and so that was just uh a big moment in life too, um, of, of just going, holy shit, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? I hadn't, I had been in LA since 2002 for nine years. I was in 2000. I was here for nine years. Never once tried to get an agent, never once tried to do anything. I did a few acting things here and there because people knew who I was and they knew I was an actor. They'd invite me to do some short film or be in a play or whatever it was, but I wasn't doing anything that I said I was here to do. And dad dying, like all these things started coming to the surface. And in that, in the, in the wake of that, I think it was also this voice of going, Hey, this story's still here, still needs yeah. to come out. And, um, thanks to Kim Lee, I was able to face that fear and work with her. And she would literally just say, okay, I want you to tell me this story. I want you to write about mm -hmm. this. I want you to write about that. And we get on the phone once a week. I read her everything I wrote. And if I cried my eyes out reading it, she'd go, okay, let's keep that one. And let's, let's work on this, you know? And then yeah. we built the show and, and then, you know, it came out. But for me, pretty much everything I do creatively, I am a very reluctant creative. I, even in high school, I, I had a crush on a girl. I would go to uh, somehow, for some reason, the director of all the plays agreed to let me sit in the gymnasium where the, where the stage was and watch them rehearse. And because I had a crush on this girl, I would watch them rehearse all the time. And there was a play called Up the Down Staircase. Again, don't know why I remember that. Um, but this one kid had all the comedic relief in this play and he screwed up the lines every single time. And I got so angry. Um, that uh, I ended up trying out for the next play and, you know, became an actor because of it. And, um, but I, I've been reluctant my whole, my whole life with it. Uh, I, I failed out of school immediately. I got accepted, got a scholarship for acting to SMU in Dallas, failed out immediately, went back six years later and finally graduated, um, you know, and then came out here. And again, it took me until 2000, from 2002 to 2017, that's how long it took me to really get serious and yeah. to really start pursuing this. And then, you know, when it comes, especially, but especially when it comes to write, like now it's my passion. Acting is my passion. I love writing too. And I love creating in that way too. But um, it, it's still, 
it's still a push push pull and yeah. and it's just when the voice gets and the knocks get too loud where i can't ignore them anymore and i finally sit down and go okay fine yeah right all right right well it's funny hearing all this because that's not who i see now because <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's like this drive to do things and be vocal and uh you know you're creating and working and now working with shelly on on projects and things um so it's funny hearing you be like i'm a reluctant creator i'm like i'm like looking going, man the drive to even write out a script is like it's just so crazy um so so tell me a little bit about that and i feel like i'm gonna feel like i'm gonna have to have you on again and like dive deep because there's like a billion different directions here but um sure. you know you've been working on obviously one man show then working on you've scripted out for a drama series kind of based on your background, which I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, like how did that kind of start? And then, you know, was it something where it was like, cause, cause I feel like this where it's like, okay, I've said it. How much more can I say? You know, I think that's kind of what we always do. Like, but you're going and saying like, okay, there's potential here to like, not only just tell the story, but like, through drama and acting and through screenplays like how do we share this story in unique creative ways like uh how did that idea come into come into play and like where are you at with everything on that front yeah um well it came about because of that uh the fort worth star telegram piece um because that reinvigorated because i had done my my first iteration of my solo show in 2012 and so that came out around 2018 mm -hmm. Um, and so that kind of sparked things again for me. And I had done the other, the second iteration of the show, probably 2016, I think. Um, and so this just became the next sort of step. And when I, when that article came out, it reminded me of Cynthia McCloskey. I, I looked her up again. I found her website. I found my story on her website and somehow or another that led me to Linda Murphy's website. <laughs> and um and I found my story on Linda Murphy's website. Huh. And I was like, oh interesting. that's interesting. Yeah. And so I wrote like info at or whatever, whatever it was. And I was just like, hey, you don't know me, but I see that my story is on your website, which is totally cool. Yeah, right. Um I it's said not but cease I, and assist. We're we're good. We're good. Yeah. And I said, yeah. but I just wondered if you'd be willing to talk to me. Right. And she emailed me back almost immediately. Yeah. And she said, yeah, John, hi, I know who you are. Uh, I'm very sorry for using the story without your permission. Right. <laughs> Again, I didn't care. Um, and within a day or so, I was on the phone with Linda and we just started talking about everything. And I told her, I said, I want, I, I think I want to write a movie about this. And, um, and I said, you know, it would be helpful to me as a, you know, someone creating I said, if I could just borrow your name as a consultant mm. so that they can see that, like, I'm actually sourcing this from a reputable source. Yeah. And she said to me, and I really, I, I, I should check in because I don't know where she is and I don't know what, th how things are. But she said to me at the time, she said, oh, John, I, you know, I, 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 I'm sick um, and I don't want to talk too much. Um she said, so if you promise you're not going to call me too much um, and just call me once in a while, then I, mm -hmm. I, I will let you do that. And she said, I think your heart's in the right place. I think you have good intentions. And I said, okay, great. And so I started tackling it then. And, you know, 
at, at this point in life, like I'm very fortunate to have good friends in the industry. And one of those good friends is a writer and a showrunner uh, on a TV show right now. And we went out to dinner with her and uh, her husband. And my wife said, you got to tell, you got to tell them your story. And I said, all right. And so over dinner that night, I told them everything. And when I finished telling that story, this, this woman looked at me and she said, John, there's way too much here. There's way too much for a movie. You, you got to make it a TV show. Mm. And I said, oh, okay. And so then she started sending me all kinds of stuff. She sent me all these pitch decks and things that she had done for her own shows and mm. for you know things and allowed me to start you know, stumbling through it uh, to, to, to sort of start creating it all. Um, and then, you know, it's been, we've been going on two years now um, and uh, we're finally in the place where I'm done. I, I, I'm done. I, I've, I've reached the point where I know that I've, I'm at the ceiling of my, my capacity as a writer and a creator. And uh, I need someone more experienced, like a showrunner, an executive producer, a director, or somebody like that that's been established to yeah. come in and get their their hands all over it and really make it what it can be. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, we just, you know, and, and we, you know, we, we tweaked a lot of things and, you know, basically how it started was I would just, I would be on, I'd be on the phone with Shelly. And so many times I'd just be laying on the floor out here on the phone with her and we would just talk through, talk through, talk through, talk through the story and just constantly. And then, you know, for hours at a time, and then I would go, okay, I see it. And as soon as I saw it, I would go to the computer and start writing. Yeah, That's usually how I write now is like, I, I will wrestle with it for a while. And then when I see the clear picture, I'm like, Oh, Bolton, listen, right. Yeah. And I'll bang out 10, 15 pages in a, you know, in, in one go just to, just to get it out. And so through that, you know, we entered contests with that script. We became finalists in the very first contest that we entered with that script. Um, and that helped get us a little bit of momentum and, you know, uh, some recognition there. And we've, we've, we've since placed in several other competitions. Um, and now, now we're at a point where, um, like I said, we've done everything we can. You saw the materials. Um, we've got a solid, you know, and I've sent this to, to, to different people that I trust, um, and again, people who are very established in the industry um, and gotten their thoughts and feelings, and that's helped tweak everything. And now we're just kind of, you know, we've got the script, we've got the, ironically, what's called the Bible, um, <laughs> which <laughs> everything that the show is and everything, right. the characters, the, the the settings, all that stuff. And, yeah. um, you know, we've got the the pitch video that Shelly and I made yeah. about our experience, great. Uh, along with our friend Tim, um, who is an awesome, wonderful director and just a great brain to have on the, on the project as well. Um, and now my manager is sending it out. And again, you know, with the, the impending strike happening here, uh, we'll know more May 1st, I guess, whether or not we'll go on the strike or not, but, uh, or the writers go on strike. Um, it's kind of an iffy time to be trying to push it, but just with some intimate sort of contacts that are, you know, being passed around and, you know, so There's so much. I I was watching uh, Righteous Gemstones uh, last last year, (laughs) and um, and um, and I I joked to my wife. I said that's the best documentary I've seen in a long time. Ah. Um, But but it was one thing I told her. I said I would almost like a more serious version 
that covers like almost a Wolf of Wall Street-esque, you know, here's the grandiose craziness of like a place like Hiles or, yeah. or, or a drama, you know, there's so many great dramas, like crime dramas and things that, that would yeah. fit right in. And I really think there's a big, there's a big untapped version of that. Cause I think, and it is, it's one of the things, even with righteous gemstones, you know, like I watch, I watch that show and I'm like, there's some things that I'm like, it's, it's like, if somebody had grown up in the environment that we did, they could write a really amazing show mm. based on these experiences. But I yeah. think if you're on the outside, you get captivated by the grandiose craziness of it. And you miss some of the smaller details that right. would really land it. And then I think if you're a lot of people inside just don't have the creative function. So like, I think there's a lot of potential, someone like you going in, working with different people and like crafting this story. Um, and I, I, so. I selfishly hope it, you know, for me, I'll be the one, maybe I'll be the one that watches it, but like for me, <laughs> I, I really hope there's something there, you know, like there's, there's, and I do, I think it's just interesting. Like I, I, you know, there's so many great shows like Under the Banner of Heaven, like all these shows that dive into these different religions. I'm like, there's such a blue ocean here with this topic and this this environment, you know, that just hasn't been done. And Hiles is a fantastic, you know, I know you changed his name uh, quite drastically to, to hide. <laughs> um, That'll change again. I just had to, it was, that's from a early, something in there. You know? Yeah, that's an early iteration that was just to help me keep it straight in my mind. Yeah. But it, he's such a character. Like there's really such, there's such a bizarre, like you watch old footage of him and just, you have it in your pitch deck, but like this bizarre footage of him. It's like, who is this man? Yeah, like, yeah. He, he, there's so much like I, I told someone, you know, I said he was like a mafia. Yes. The dawn of like this mafia. 100%. But he was also like the, you know, the Walt Disney of fundamentalism. I mean, he, 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 there's so many ways to portray and, and share him. You can, can use I steal it. that? Can you I steal that? that? The, the, the Don and the, and the Walt Disney. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, no, I, I'm really hopeful to see that it that it comes together. And I and um, the other piece I was going to ask about that. I know Shelley's been very involved with like the I got out kind of yeah. world. Like on the activism side, is that something that you've been heavily part of? Is it something like I know? Obviously, the the show is a big expression of this. Like as far as like going out, sharing your story, raising awareness. Like how much involved have you been or do you want to be kind of on that side i haven't been as involved um in fact and and i desperately want to be okay um you know it, it, it's you know and look this is par for the course because I, you know there was a moment with i got out where they had included me on an email and people the core group of people um because only a few of them knew me uh, and the rest didn't. And the rest that didn't were like, wait a minute, who is this? What is he doing? Why is he coming in? Yeah. And I and, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. I understand that because, yeah. you know, growing up and or, you know, being involved in these kinds of things, um, you're necessarily protective. And um, I get it. I get it. And so um, it's something I want to be more involved in. And I'm sure that I will be as things continue to evolve and grow. Um, and you know, I may go back to St. Louis, even, uh, where, which is where I'm from, where my family is. Um, I may go back for the, I got out thing this fall. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, I'm still not sure yet, but, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I desperately want to. I mean, look, and, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, the very first time I ever did my show, Eric, um, <laughs> I did it at, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Whittier College mm. here in, in Whittier, California. And um, for some wonderful reason, the school mandated that the sports teams show up to this show. And it was me and it was Kim Lee. And we did our shows back to back. So about two hours with a little intermission in between. And I did my show first and she, she anchored it, thankfully. Uh, but, uh, the first experience was a wild one. And, you know, it, it was hard because, you know, you've got a bunch of young, dumb jocks in there uh, trying to prove their manhood. Um, and so I would talk about certain things and I could hear them in the audience going, oh, oh, you did what? Oh, what happened? Oh, you know, stuff like that. And it was, very hostile sort of experience yeah. and crowd. And, um, and it was, it threw me off and, you know, my show was about an hour long and I said about five minutes into it, I said a line that was about five minutes from the end of it. And I freaked out and, you know, but I'm an actor and a good one. And I was like, Oh wait, hold on. Um, and I reached back and grabbed something <laughs> that made sense to me. And I did. And then I continued through the story and nobody knew the difference except for me and my director. Yeah. And, but at the end of that night, um, I was sitting on stage. I had this big wooden chest, like an old pirate's chest that it was part of my set. And um, I was sitting on that and I was uh, truly just beating the crap out of myself for everything that I messed up, everything I forgot, everything, like all the stuff, all this, everything. And Kim Lee is standing over here talking to the woman from the college who brought us. And I'm sitting here just, hey, you dumbass, you did that, you did that, you know. Yeah. I look over here and I see this young black man walk up and uh, onto the stage way over there. There's a huge stage and I see him and he's looking at me like he's looking for permission. And I let him in. come here, man. This dude walks over to me and he says, my name is Kofi. I grew up in Ghana and the same, the things that happened to you happened to me. And I didn't know that we could talk about those things until I saw you tonight. Mm. I wish I knew where Kofi was because I would like to thank him because he is the reason that I have a burning desire to make sure that I tell these stories yeah. because I know you understand how difficult and isolating it feels to be someone who comes up in a cult. Being someone who is sexually abused, I don't know anything lonelier personally. And most of my life I spent feeling like I was the only one. I was alone. Nobody else would understand. And for that young man to have the courage to come up to me and say that to me, not only made me love him, but it also showed me how important it is to tell these stories because I know without a doubt, like I know the numbers, I know the numbers statistically, mm -hmm. how many kids are sexually abused and it is staggering. Yeah. And in that crowd of however many kids were there that night, I know that there were probably 10 at least, at least yeah. who had been sexually molested. And if the only person that I gave permission to was Kofi, 
then it was worth it. Yeah. And he's who I think about anytime I tackle these subject matters, because he's still to this day, the one that said, has said to me, I didn't know I could talk about this. And you, you let me know that I could do that. And so the, the desire is there because I know how lonely of a journey that is. And I know how difficult it was for me. And I think I'm a really strong freaking person. And I know that there are so many others who don't have that same strength. And I want to be able to just say, Hey, I'm here. You're not alone. Yeah. If you want to come out, cool. And if you don't, cool. but just know, like there are others, we're all here. Like we're waiting. And in fact, you know, I, I meditate a lot these days. Um, and lately my meditations have gotten sort of wild. Um, it's been really interesting, but, um, like a week or so ago, um, I was meditating on some of this stuff and, um, man, wild. <laughs> it's funny how sometimes the emotions hit you. Uh, I don't, I don't know how else to, to describe it, Eric. I, I felt these boys behind me and it seemed to go on forever behind me. And it, and it was, it was very clear to me that their message for me was, we got your back. Whatever you need to do, we got your back. And I kind of started laughing after the meditation because I thought, geez, man, can you can imagine, like, can you imagine a, a, a horde of mm -hmm. pissed off 10 year old boys coming at you? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that would be terrifying. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so it just, it just felt like that's, I've been given permission to, to, to do this and to talk about this and to, and, yeah. and to represent what I can for those who can't yet. Yeah. It's a, it's a beacon saying it's okay, which is like, you know, I mean, the stats, I mean, one in four girls, one in six boys. I think the only reason it's one in six, you know, one in four is that reporting is down for men because of stigma and all that. I, I would, I would guess that the numbers are pretty similar when it comes to child abuse. I would and say. I think they're probably even higher than one in four and one in six. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Because yeah. people don't come forward. Right. Shelly and I didn't come forward. Yeah. We didn't talk about this. It wasn't until I was 16 years old, I think. So yeah. it was probably close to a decade before yeah. anybody said anything. And that's quick. <laughs> like yeah, statistically, right, like that's like, oh, you rushed to tell your story. Like it, I think the average age is like 40 I think it's 40 years is usually is the usual time. I could be totally wrong, but I, I want to say it was like 36 or 40 years. I remember that number of like the average person takes decades to report, which is just mind blowing, like in, in tragic. Um, and so that's why so I, I have no patience for people who, well, why didn't you come forward? <laughs> Unless you've been there, you don't get it. Yeah. Cause you yeah. wouldn't, I know you haven't been there because you, you wouldn't say that if you had. Right. A hundred percent. Well, uh, like I, I, I feel like there's a billion things, and I, I, I would love to have you on again and talk through so many of this because everything I want to say right now feels like I either can't say it or I want to, I want to say it, but I shouldn't say it. Uh, there's, there's like so many pieces to this, but I want to say first and foremost, like I appreciate that you're a male survivor speaking out because that's something that is so hard to find as someone who has a platform to share these stories like it is so hard to find people willing to share their story and for good reason understandable reasons mm -hmm. um but i think it's huge and i and i'm hopeful that people hearing you they're gonna feel comfortable sharing their story 
on the other side of that, I appreciate you continually from the advocacy side, like pushing to share the story in new ways, because that's something that I felt, you know, again, I don't want to make this about me because I try never to make these about me. Um, but it's one of the things that I've struggled with the last three years. And I started the show three years ago, but the last three years is like, I come to these hills of like, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. I've, I've exhausted my ability to do this. And then, or I've exhausted, you know, the people that are going to talk to me or whatever, you know, what are all the things that we tell ourselves? Like we're done. We did everything we could do. I've maxed out my potential, you know, good for me. And then it's like, there's this whole nother layer of just story after story or ways to tell it or podcasts or YouTube or whatever that looks like. Um, So I just appreciate you creatively finding new ways to share the story. Cause I think there's, it's just necessary. Like, and I, and it is, it's, it's really easy to just not do it and focus on a lot of happier things or focus on other directions. And so I just appreciate the commitment you know, and it makes me feel not alone, yeah. like, because it, it can, it feels lonely yeah. when you're editing these horrible, terrifying, traumatic episodes that you're like, why am I doing this? Why me? Why can't someone else do this? Like, it's it's encouraging watching that. And like I said, I, I wish we'd connected sooner and talked and I have like a billion things I want to say off mic, <laughs> but um, that's cool but, too. Yeah, but thank you so much. I mean, can I, for doing can I just this share and, one more thing with yeah, you though, based on what you just told do. me? And this is something that listen, I mean, I've got almost 20 years on you. This Which is, is again ridiculous. And that <laughs> that's a whole nother layer of insecurity based on <laughs> when I you and Shelly both, because when I found out, and I don't think she told me her exact age, but I think she just said I have kids that are 20. And I almost died inside because I literally the whole conversation was like, we're peers. Yeah, yeah. Like, like (laughs) we're the same, you know, like, so the two of you, not to totally derail this, the two of you are incredible looking for your age. And so um, I, and I, on the other hand, am like, I'm not 45. Okay. (laughs) Like, so, so congratulations to both of you for your amazing. I'll say it again. That's all Paul Billy Ray. That's that. There you go. Do with me, man. But what I wanted to say to you is, uh, Eric, you know, it's, it took me a long, long time to figure this out, too. Uh, uh, sometimes when you feel like you're going in a circle, mm-hmm. you need to change your perspective because what you're actually doing is going in a spiral and going mm-hmm. up. And I feel like I'm going in a circle so often. And then sometimes I'll figure out and I am grateful for my wife, who is an incredible mirror and reflects me back to me so purely that I can course correct when I need to. And, you know, and I, and I'm surrounded by people that can do that for me. And I'm grateful for that as well, but it takes them sometimes for to point out like, Hey, that circle, you feel like you're going in, you're actually spiraling up. So just be patient and you're yeah. okay. You're, you're going in the right direction. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I feel often like I'm in a spiral, but it's more like a, a, downward, <laughs> a downward trajectory, but uh, but no, I, I do appreciate it, and uh, I feel like we should uh, reconnect and do this sooner rather than later because there's, yeah. there's like each each section that we talked about 
could go a mile deep. Uh, yeah, but course, course. Um, but I, I really appreciate you coming on. I've got a billion things I'm going to try to squeeze in in a second after I hit that uh, stop record button. Uh, cool. But really appreciate it. If someone wants to connect with you, follow you, um, see what you're doing, like what's the best sure. place for them to do that? Um, I'm on the socials, you know, Instagram, Twitter, and you know, my, I had to, I had to get a little complicated because game of Thrones, uh, and, uh, John- I just told, uh, the guy that I was here filming with, I said, I'm interviewing Jon Snow in a second. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, by the time I got on social, there were so many Jon Snow accounts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it's the underscore John underscore snow. Um, and you can find me on, you know, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you can find me on IMDB, I guess, if you really want to, um, which would be just my name, which would be easy enough. So awesome. awesome. I have a website too, thejohnsnow.com um, with no underscores. It's just thejohnsnow. You could probably sell that domain now. For- I don't know. I, I tried to get johnsnow.com again, too many iterations. Too tricky. Yeah. So luckily, awesome. the John Snow is still available. So. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on. I'll link all that in the show notes and for anybody listening, you can connect there and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get you back on here really soon. Cause I want to, thanks for what you do. Thanks for what you do, Eric. I like truly, I mean, you've given me a lot of praise and a lot of things, but thank you. Like you you. have a platform, the work you're doing is fantastic. Keep finding the stories, keep exposing these stories. I, I love what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.